This is the John Oakley Show podcast. Here's what's on the Oakley Show podcast for Monday, October 26, 2020. The outgoing CEO of Magna joins us to give his thoughts on the direction this country is going. An American congressman explains a motion he's put forward in hopes of safeguarding liberty stateside. And mullets, you're never too young to have one. All of this starts now. Outgoing CEO of Magna International, Don Walker, who uh, apparently is leaving, but not necessarily quietly, believes he has something to say for the future prosperity of Canada to that end. Uh, Wanted to get Don in here so maybe he can address some of these bigger themes. Uh, Don, good to talk to you. It's been a while. Thanks for joining us this afternoon. My pleasure, Don. It has been a long time. It has. In the meantime, I see you've been rather busy and accomplished and all the rest of that. So uh, as you leave, though, and this is what I was reading in the Financial Post, that uh, you're not interested in sitting on boards or going into politics per se, but you still believe you can influence policy. And that's what I wanted to talk about, because it's really something that's at the nub of uh, a lot of our concerns. Uh, This project, the future prosperity of Canada. How do you see it? I mean, uh, are you bullish on uh, Canada's prospects for prosperity uh, prosperity post-pandemic? Uh, what are your concerns? Yeah, if I can just back up a little bit. I've been working on this idea for a couple of years and, and, and looking at education. But if you if you look at uh, the, the benefit of what I've, I've seen around the world, we operate in 27 countries with over 100,000 employees. Uh, in the auto parts business, but it's been interesting to see what other countries do and how they view being competitive over the long term. So I started working on this because I I looked at if I if somebody said what would you do running a country? I think we need to say what is the vision for the country long term. And part of our political problem, quite frankly, is everybody has to get reelected in four years, so they're constantly making promises to get reelected, whether they politicians think they're good or not. And uh, I think there's a lot of very bright people in politics, but they typically don't necessarily come out of uh, business, so, so they don't have the same viewpoint as somebody running a, a company and having to be competitive over the long term. So that's where it came from, and, and I, I think Canada is a good place, but uh, what do we need to do to be have, have good prosperity, good standard of living 20 years down the road? We need to focus on it, because right now, our political system forces everybody to think too short term. And we'd agree, I guess, that prosperity does underpin all these other wonderful things that we see as, uh, you know, a birthright or entitlement, whether it's health care, education, so on and so forth. Can't have one without the other. Uh, do you worry, by the way, that uh, we may be slipping towards a more socialistic society? I personally am very worried about that. And, you know, it's not it wouldn't be surprising if we continue because, you know, if you want to get elected, what's a popular thing to be saying to a lot of people that don't want to spend a lot of time thinking about it or or don't understand it? The logical thing would be to say, I'm going to give you everything for free. You don't have to work so hard. I'll look after you. And where are we going to get the money from? Well, we're just going to tax the high-income earners uh, more than the 54% they're already paying, and we'll tax big corporations. So, you know, the and, and then we're going to be paying everybody. Uh, you know, if you look at the the public sector, uh, you know, benefits that go on forever, defined benefits and things like that that no company can really afford. So, uh, it's not a surprise. I shouldn't be surprised to anybody, but I, I do think there's a lot of very bright people, if you could put everybody's head together and say with the rea- reality of our 
political system, how would you move the youth in this country to really understand what we need to do so they are going to be living in a great country with all of our values still in another 20 years from now? All right, uh, and that's the curiosity to me. What is the best counterproposal or the countervailing argument then to a drift towards socialism? Well, I think the, the best way I'd explain it if we were in person there would be to say, if you look at one piece of paper, what are the values for Canada? I think we could all agree we want freedom, we want a high standard of living, we want to be safe. But do we really want people to take responsibility for themselves? And that means a lot of things, education, health, everything else. And we want to be a capitalistic or a socialistic society. We need to have that discussion. And if you look at the current state of Canada, there's a lot of givens. There's, we have a certain population, certain raw materials here, some areas of expertise. Uh, what's our education, health care system? What's the health of people? What's our tax rates and debt, and debt levels? So you could say this is the starting point. What's the desired state in 20 years from now? Uh, what do we want to do for the, a lot of those things? And what's going to be going on in the world? Who's our competitors in, in 20 years? Because we know a lot of things are changing. Populations are changing. The demographics, wealth distribution between countries is changing. Security is an issue. And there's going to be a lot of environmental issues. Uh, solar, uh, solar energy is coming. And then there's a lot of things which, whether we like it or not, are going to influence all that. Artificial intelligence is, is going to be much more prevalent. Uh, we call it the Internet of Things, how all the computers talk to each other, advanced robotics, healthcare advances, new materials added to manufacturing, uh, people more in virtual reality. So you can lay all this out and say, okay, we're here. This is where we want to get to. Here's what the outside factors. Here's what the competition is doing. What do we want to do to compete? And if we say we really don't want to do anything because nobody wants to improve all the systems we have and people will be healthier on their own rather than you know, taking drugs. This would take hours to get into it. I've broken it down into 11 different areas, but you could take each one and just sort of walk through with what our plan should be and based on what's everybody else in the world doing, what's the best out there, what works in our system, and then try and implement that. But you need a communication strategy for the voting public and especially the young people. So they, are, they want to move to action as well and hold the politicians accountable but also allow the politicians to do the right things for the right for the long term rather than what they need to do to get reelected in a year or two. Again, yeah, the bigger uh, vision for the longer horizon. Again, with Don Walker, outgoing CEO of Magna International, on this matter, future prosperity of Canada. It's kind of interesting. It sounds to me like uh, you're really on the precipice of maybe establishing a think tank. Would I be all around the net with that? Uh, well, yeah, I, I think there's a lot of good think tanks out there. I, I wouldn't want to reinvent the wheel. I think it's just getting maybe the right people who already have a lot of good ideas and, and listening to opposing views and, and, and getting people to, and maybe a think tank, maybe not a new one, but getting to go through a process to get to where we say, here's the action items, the first, the, the second, the third, the fourth, the fifth, in each one of these areas, and then see what's practical to move them. So I, I do think getting input from all sides of, of the issues is important. 
you know, Don, uh, some of this stuff is reminiscent of, uh, and he's been your mentor uh, and father-in-law, Frank Stronach. Uh, when we talk about health care, for example, for preventative health care, he wanted to introduce the HMOs in Magna, you know, basically deliver health care, better health care for uh, less than what OHIP in this province could deliver it for. I mean, is this the kind of stuff like models that need to be adopted? Uh, there may be public resistance, as we know, uh, certainly from the left. But are those the kinds of ideas that you would be uh, hoping to present? Well, yeah. If, if I, uh, Frank hired me 33 years ago in the Magno. I was trying to start up my own company, but I, you know, I had the benefit of working with him and seeing he had a lot of visionary ideas, and that's why Magna has done so well, quite frankly. But you know, that was one idea. But if you look at things like education, how do we make young people interested in education? How do we deliver to them the most effective way? Uh, everybody said you couldn't possibly do online learning. Well, there's all sorts of great models out there, but there's huge resistance to doing it for various reasons. But becoming more of a reality, but why wouldn't we take the best and brightest educators in the world, present them to all of our young people so they love learning, they are learning, they're getting life skills, and they want to continue to learn, uh, and why not utilize the, the best out there? So, you know, that would be one example. Healthcare is, a, is another one, but, you know, I think a lot of people don't even understand healthcare. We're not using the preventative healthcare that we should be. We're waiting until people get sick, and then we give them drugs. But you have to get people to understand it first. So it comes back to education and caring. And you know, and quite frankly, you're not going to move everybody to action. And if people don't want to look after their own health care, they don't want to get an education, well, they're going to go by the wayside. So, you know, and, and maybe I shouldn't say this, but if people don't want to, if they're capable and they want to look after themselves, well, then we can't help you. And you're not, you're not going to have a lot of money, but we want to help the people that want to help themselves. Yeah, change the psychology, shift the paradigms. Kind of curious, like in the overarching uh, scheme of things, how do we engender or retain competitiveness? You've seen uh, corporate tax rates have gone south in the states, meaning that uh, they're far less than this precinct, or at least it's being discussed here that uh, they'd have to go up again. And globally, I mean, in the global economy, how do we uh, manage to recruit the, the best, the brightest, and have that competitive edge? Huge issue, a huge opportunity as well. Like, how how do you get the best and the brightest to come to Canada to succeed here and stay here? And the way to do that is not to say, well, we're just going to keep on you know, uh, raising your taxes. You want the young best people to stay here, It'll be, you know. And I don't I don't think the solution is necessarily lowering taxes. You can look at what's what what do we what do we need to do to be competitive? What are our competing jurisdiction doing? Whether that's personal or corporate. Uh, and then if we can spend the money efficiently, then we wouldn't have such a big problem. You know, in every government, every uh, Premier Ford talked about this and the media talks and everybody else does, but he said, and I agree with them, everybody should get 2 to 3% more efficient every year. Who in the government can't get more efficient by 2 to 3%? Who could possibly think that they can't? They're just going to be think out of the box. Every company that survives has to. So... Why don't we take that as a mandate? We'd probably save $40 billion just in Ontario over the next five years. And that's simple. But, you know, it's, it's, you, you need to have the will to move. And you need to have the media talk intelligently and not just hit the headlines all the time because that doesn't help. Finally, I've got to ask, I mean, is the future in a green economy? Uh, and if so, I mean, I know Magna's made a major pivot to uh, electric vehicles and 
all of those things now uh, because we were promised under the McGuinty regime 600,000 jobs would accrue to us here if we went with solar and wind and never really materialized. Then we're signed into the Paris Accord, which uh, may beggar our own economy and China and India really not doing anything. China 2030 by then, uh, you know, we may have lost the window or that ship may have sailed. So how do you see the whole green economy shaping up? Well, it's a very complicated subject. I'm an engineer by background, and you know, I'll give you my opinion. Uh, first of all, wind and solar 10 years ago in Ontario was crazy. I mean, it sounds good, but you get elected, but it's stupid. Uh, we, we just The payback wasn't there. Solar is certainly getting better, but we're not in that really, really warm climate. But at, at, you have to have a chief scientist, I think, to say, when does solar uh, pay off? When does wind pay off? What are we doing for battery technology and storage technology? How soon will it come? Because for us to lose uh, manufacturing here, to go to a place like China, when we have relatively sustainable energy and they have the dirtiest, dirtiest coal in the world, what are we doing? We may think we're putting ourselves on the chest, but we're losing jobs and we're creating way more pollution in the Earth's atmosphere. So, I mean, would you, you, there's no simple solution and things are going green. And I'm a big believer in sustainability and reducing global warming. I, you know, we're working hard at that at Magna, but you also can't ruin your country over it. So you have to figure out what's the best in the world. And again, it's a very complicated subject, but we should be dealing with science and uh, economics of it to make the right decision. And let everybody know what the facts are. You know, we're going to have to do this uh, by way of follow-up. I mean, there's so much more to be addressed uh, about the future prosperity of Canada, near and dear to a lot of our hearts, and certainly to yours, Don. I, I really appreciate your time this afternoon. Uh, hope we'll talk sooner rather than uh, the last time around. It was too long. Yeah, I'd be happy to do it. And just, and just by the way, I, I, I have talked to a lot of people in the government, and I think if you talk to most people, they all want to do the right thing. It just has to have a system that allows them to do it. Uh, to a large extent. So, you know, I'd be happy to, and uh, I'm looking forward to spending a little bit more time on this project. Very good. Well, yeah, you understand templates, schematics, and all the rest as an engineer and uh, without parallel. Don, again, thanks so much for your time. We'll talk down the road. Thanks, John. Okay, bye. Yep, stay well. Don Walker, outgoing CEO of Magna International, and of course his project now as he's retiring at the end of the year after all those years of Magna, 33-plus, I think, uh, the future prosperity of Canada. But when it comes to threats and the president, uh, there is some concern that perhaps uh, in the throes of desperate situations and maybe what are seen as uh, national security risks, he may in fact shut down the Internet at will. It is actually a concern, so much so that uh, it's a bipartisan bill that's being proposed by both a, a Democrat and uh, a Republican rep from the 9th Congressional District of Virginia, Morgan Griffith, who is with us on the line to tell us why uh, this is a necessary measure to be taking uh, to maybe uh, tamp down any order from any chief executive who wants to shut the Internet down at will. Uh, Representative Griffith, good to have you on the Oakley Show. Good afternoon. It's good to be with you. Thank you. So just in a nutshell here, this uh, the Preventing Unwarranted Communication Shutdowns Act, uh, is there a need for this, actually? Well, I think that there is, and it's probably just an oversight that's been there for years because the, the Internet is now governed by laws that were basically crafted in the 30s, and they, they gave the president the ability to you know shut everything down in a time of national emergency. I don't have a problem with that, nor does my Democrat colleague. But 
you know, and just talking about it and trying to make sure that we preserve freedoms. And as you know, being a Virginian uh, and long history here in the state, we were one of the states that crafted the Bill of Rights and, and worked hard to make sure that individuals had liberty. We want to make sure there's a check. We agree that the president may need to do that in times of crisis. But we want to make sure that there's a check on that power. And this gives Congress the ability to say, wait a minute, whoa, 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 that's not what we think you ought to be doing, and, and put a check on that power. They may be in agreement, in which case, you know, we're in a true national emergency and we need to move forward. But it's not about any one president. It's about making sure the executive branch doesn't go too far in imposing on people's individual liberty. Right, which would be seen as overtly authoritarian, and we've seen in other countries, uh, I guess we could say, I mean, you would uh, agree that uh, China, for one, I mean, Russia has its own set of rules when it comes to these matters, so you wanted to just uh, make sure that's not a consideration uh, when it comes to America. Uh, so this is a bipartisan motion, and which is important to note. Was there anything that maybe transpired over the last number of months that may have uh, lent credence to the need for this act? No, I don't. I don't think there's anything specific in America. You did mention, you know, China, and there are some other countries that have done this type of thing. And uh, we just want to make sure that American citizens are protected. That if it is a true national emergency, have at it. But if not, we want Congress. That's our part of our check and balance this system in the country. We want to make sure Congress has its ability to put something and, and say something. And we dropped it late in the election so that nobody could say we were trying to do this to any one president and that's always a fear is that you know the people will think it's a partisan bill this is not a partisan bill this was put in congress making sure we're protecting liberties against any executive so we don't know who's going to win i'm rooting for trump my colleague is rooting for biden but whoever wins we want to make sure that congress has the ability to give a second voice and say no you can't shut off the internet congressman griffith you know it's been said that uh look uh, that america is becoming uh more authoritarian What's your sense for it? Is it more or less? I mean, uh, or is it pretty much status quo? Can anybody make that claim? Because uh, I've heard that said. Don't always agree, but uh, it's just a sense. I'd like to know from your perspective how you see it. I don't know that I agree that it's more authoritarian, but there certainly is concern on both the left and the right that the government, the centralized government in D.C. is becoming more powerful and people are fearful on both the far left and the far right that that may happen someday. Uh, so we're just trying to make sure we have the protections in there. And if this one is one that pops up, that we'll have the ability for Congress to step in and say, no, 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 not doing that. Maybe another way of phrasing whether it's authoritarianism, uh, is there more centralized authority? I mean, we in Canada sometimes are concerned about that, too, and uh, the divisions of power, so on and so forth. Uh, what accrues to our premiers versus our prime minister? In your case, I mean, it would be the governors versus, of course, uh, the central power of the executive uh, and the other branch. How do you see that? Well, I do think over the course of the last 50 years, the, the federal government in Washington, D.C. has taken more and more powers away from uh, the governors in the various states. And uh, and I, for one, don't think that's always good. Sometimes you don't have any choice because you have to have national policies on commerce and trade issues and so forth. But uh, I do think that we could probably uh, see a little less uh, of dictating of policy to the states by the federal government. But the states want the federal money. And that's how the federal government has grown in power. So it is something to be concerned about. What about reigning in the power of the big tech companies? Uh, this obviously is now before the, uh, I guess it's the, uh, 
boy, it's the Senate uh, Judiciary Committee I get looking into the big tech companies like Google, uh, Facebook, and whether or not uh, they've got too much concentrated power. Are you in favor of seeing them broken up or some way uh, along the line, their uh, power and influence reduced? I think we have to put some, again, checks and balances in. I'm not really in favor of breaking them up. I hope that that's a last resort uh, because then all that does is is give the tech giants in China and Russia the ability to to take over the rest of the world. I think we need to have some large companies doing it. But when you have Twitter shutting down the House Republican uh, Judiciary Committee website censoring that, we've got to figure out some rules on what you can and can't censor. If you're going to be a platform then you can't be making political decisions. And unfortunately, Twitter clearly did that. They backed off of it after a day or so. But uh, other platforms are doing the same thing or similar things. We have to make sure we have some rules that make sense if we're going to continue to have these giant companies uh, dictate. I mean, they are the news source uh, of the day. Well, yeah, you've said platforms a couple of times. Some are even wondering if they've uh, actually gone above and beyond that uh to where they position themselves as publishers, which really kicks in a whole different set of legalities, I guess, where they can be sued for things that they publish right now. They're uh, kind of claiming immunity because they're merely platforms and allowing uh, free, unfettered information, which is, of course, uh, central to the argument. I appreciate your joining us this afternoon. Uh, interesting to see that this is a, a law that you're proposing or an act, the Preventing Unwarranted Communication Shutdowns Act, and it's a bipartisan initiative, and you're on the Republican side of things. Uh, good to talk to you this afternoon and get that perspective. Good to talk with you. Have a great day. And you, Morgan Griffith, Republican Rep for the 9th Congressional District of Virginia in the U.S. House of Representatives. Still with a matter that might be relegated to uh, the rural precincts of North America, We've been joined on the line by Kevin Begala. Kevin is the owner of mulletchamp.com. I was looking at his website and totally enthralled. We thought we'd have to talk about this because they've got a big main event coming up early in the new year. And as a matter of fact, the winner in the kids' mullet final is going to be announced tomorrow. Kevin, really appreciate you joining us on the uh, Oakley Show here in Toronto, Canada. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's an honor. I'm, I'm glad that we reached that far north. Uh, we're here in Michigan, so... Uh, it was kind of cool to see uh, you guys pick this up. Well, your neighbors, we're not that far north. I mean, come on, we're just down the highway from Michigan, but still in all. Uh, all right, so you got into this mullet thing. As a matter of fact, you are the owner of mulletchamp.com. Uh, what made you decide to go this route, Kevin, and what inspired this after all? I am. Um, so I own a store here in, in Michigan called Bridge Street Exchange. It's a men's shop, and we've we've always done a lot with guys with beards and you know, obviously, uh, the focus was on a lot of beard contests and stuff. So, um, before I guess the, the pandemic hit, we were actually going to run a mullet con a contest as something just kind of breaking up 2020. And, um, when everything kind of went down the way it did and, and we kind of, the country shut down, we decided to kind of postpone that. And then coming back out of that, when the economy started opening back up, we, you know, here in Michigan, the, barber shops and hair salons and stuff like that were kind of one of the remaining things to open. So a lot of people let their hair go and, and we thought, wow, this is a kind of perfect timing to unleash uh, another contest uh, for kids, um, which was after the fact, but really we started with adults and we started it all here in Michigan. So we, we ended up uh, for the adult contest, we had people drive to our store and we had over 130 contestants in that. We narrowed that one down to a top 10, just like we did with the kids one. 
and then um, we turned it over to like a voting tally and then we crowned a champion so that was kind of fun I think the uh, lightning in a bottle effect kind of took took part as well because the mullets are kind of here and and there's a ton of people rocking them (laughs) that's what they're doing they're rocking them for sure uh the michigan mud flap i guess you called it uh i've heard a lot of derivations of different names kentucky waterfall uh you know business up front party in the back all the rest of that and you know when you look at the litany of people who've sported the mullet over the years you even go back to ben franklin you know uh one of the founding fathers uh he had a mullet then there's Brett the Hitman Hart, uh, Barry Melrose in hockey, Joe Dirt. Uh, who else? Do, who would come to mind readily for rocking a mullet, as you say? Well, definitely Billy Ray Cyrus is uh, up there. Yeah. So uh, he's he's on the the cast of people. I would say Yarmar Yager um, from the Penguins. He had a glorious <laughs> mullet during his hockey days. He's definitely on our list of people that we'd love to talk to at some point too. So there are some amazing celebrity mullets out there. Obviously, the Joe Dirt movie. Uh, with David Spade was huge as well to, uh, you know, make it a, a pop culture type of thing. So it, it's neat to kind of look back at the mullet, and now we're seeing, like, more modern mullets with a twist coming out right now. Well, the kids category, and this is going to be decided tomorrow, I've seen the pictures here on your website. Uh, again, that's mulletchamp.com, and we're talking to Kevin Begala, who's the owner of said. You've got these kids like uh, Jackson Ray. He's one and a half years old from Pennsylvania. His style is the little Jack Dirt, uh, kind of like Joe Dirt, but Jack Dirt. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, he's one and a half years of age, and he's got the big mullet thing going on there. I mean, kind of reminds me of people who groom their dogs in a fanciful way, but this is cute. Uh, so these kids, this is from all over the country now that have been entered into your contest where you're deciding the champ tomorrow. I mean, give us a sense for who some of these kids are and uh, what styles are they rocking exactly? Well, yeah, it was awesome. We got kids across the whole country. I mean, we've got, a, I think we only have one state with two kids in it in the top 10. Um, we reach as far West as, you know, we're going all the way to California. There's a kid from, uh, I believe Denver, Colorado, uh, down South Purdue. Some, we even had one local kid in Michigan. Um, it's been amazing. I mean, the, the amount of support that these kids have, have gained through this has been awesome definitely been worth it for me to see like all the fanfare that they've been given i've got a lot of the parents kind of emailing me and telling me stories about whole school districts getting behind these kids so we've had over twenty thousand votes um, that were turned in and the great thing about that number is actually you can only vote one per once per 24 hours per email address so we kind of capped the amount of people that would just sit there on a computer all day and vote so Having 20,000 people vote was pretty tremendous, and just the amount of, of great press out there for all these kids has been super cool. I mean, some local news organizations have jumped right on it, and, and they're, everybody's in their corners right now. So it's going to be awesome tomorrow. We're going to be doing a Facebook Live event um, between 9.30 and 10 o'clock Eastern time to uh, announce the final winner and then the runners-up. So it's going to be awesome. They're adorable, these kids. One-year-old Archie from Tennessee has got his Tennessee top hat. That's his mullet. Uh, This nine-year-old Barrett from California, the COVID camper shell. I like this. Mm -hmm. Uh, The modern mullet. Yeah, by the way, uh, is the mullet coming back, I guess, or is it just a a COVID-related thing because haircuts were hard to come by in the initial stages and the hair grew long and people decided to have some fun with it? Because I know in your criteria for evaluating, you've not only got, but you've got age of style. And I was thinking, well, yeah, the age of the style is circa 1990s. What else do we need Mm -hmm. to know? What does that mean? 
Yeah, I mean, really the age of the style and, like, uh, how long they've been rocking it for. So, like, little Archie, I mean, he's only a year and a half, but you look at a lot of year-and-a-half-old kids, I mean, they can't grow that amount of hair in that time frame. So <laughs> kind of cool to see a little guy like that having such long, awesome hair. Um, some of the other ones, uh, you know, Jude has got – he's rocking the whole dyed hair, and it's really cool. His is more of like a European modern mullet. Uh, just to see all that um, – some of these kids, you know, they've been been wearing it for a couple of years, and, and, you know, they're not that old. So it's more of a lifestyle with a mullet, too. So this isn't a fad, I don't think, at this point. I, I bet you it's here to stay for a few years. A lot of people identify with it. When our men's one happened, you know, at the end of it, I kind of asked a couple of guys uh, in the top ten, I said, well, what are you going to do now? They're like, oh, I'm not cutting my hair. There's no way. And I think right. a lot of these kids are going to kind of live by it, too, and they're going to probably keep their mullet. So 25, 30 years from now, I guess we'll see if they're still uh, rocking it. <laughs> Right. Seven-year-old Weston from Texas, the Texas tailgate. You got the freedom flapper on Noah in Illinois and the waterfall. Luca, four, uh, from Georgia. Good stuff. Uh, by the way, when's the main event in 2021? So what we're going to do is uh, we've learned a lot through the process. You know, what started out as an idea is kind of really taken off. I want to sanction a lot more of this. And obviously with COVID, we're trying to do virtual events and, and it's harder to do, I guess, big live events. But the, the pathway I want to take this is to, to either license it out for bars and, and bigger concerts and stuff like that to do where you do it regionally. And then we come together for like the 2021 contest to name the top 10 mullets. And then from there crown the champion and down the road, I would love to send a couple guys from North America over, over the pond uh, to the world championship. So uh, we're a little bit behind in, in our mullet um, competition right. stuff over here, but there are world championships of mullets. And last year they crowned a gentleman right when we were kind of kicking off and, and ending our men's stuff, they crowned their champion in Australia. The mullet is pretty darn big. So wow. kind of neat to see that. And it would be awesome to send a couple of, faces from over here over there to compete because i think most of them are, are european countries and participants well that kid there in mad max the original one the little kid uh, who was uh, mel gibson's sidekick but he had the quintessential mullet so you're right all over the the uh area there with uh, australia anyway uh we're gonna let you run on that note and uh look at it with interest tomorrow on mulletchamp.com and see uh, which kid cops the big prize. Kevin, appreciate you telling us all about it, and we'll look forward to the main event again in 2021. Yeah, thanks again for having me. Take care, guys. You got it. Yeah, Kevin Begola, again in Michigan, and uh, he is the owner of mulletchamp.com. That's a wrap for the Oakley Show podcast for Monday, October 26, 2020. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 Eastern. Turn the dial to 640. Listen live at 640toronto.com or search the name John Oakley on Spotify. Thanks for listening to the John Oakley Show podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your on-demand audio.